The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. What can I do and what can I say to make you who are believers see this truth? How can I lead you to the height of that magnificence which discloses to you the vast panorama that lies before the believer who has thus entered into the rest of God? For if once you can catch the vision that you are entirely freed from the law and joined to Christ, you will bring forth a new life in a newness of spirit that is beyond any comparison and which surpasses any description. We are in Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Lifted Above. An alcoholic will often respond with hostility and denial if you suggest he is addicted to alcohol. People are incurably addicted to the idea that they can earn salvation by good works and moral character, and they react with animosity to the doctrine of pure grace. Many sincere Christians believe they can grow in obedience to God by some system of keeping the law. What does it mean to be set free from the law and to live under God's grace? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Lifted Above. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou hast revealed thyself to us as our God, and hast given us the right to come to thee directly. We thank thee that thou art so approachable because of thy grace to us through the death of thy Son. And we pray thee that in this hour there shall be the rich blessing of the Holy Spirit on the preached word, so that listening hearts shall be blessed. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue studying our text in Romans 6.14. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. The doctrine of pure grace stirs up more animosity in the human heart than any other truth. Man does not want to admit his own spiritual bankruptcy which must ever precede any understanding of the nature and the reality of grace. It was a tragic hour when the Reformation churches wrote the Ten Commandments back into their creeds and catechisms and attempted to bring Gentile believers under the bondage of the Jewish law, which had never been binding upon the Gentile nations 
and which cannot be binding on the church today. Now, I am aware that if that sentence be taken by itself, it might be interpreted by the thoughtless to mean that I was teaching that a Christian could be lawless, but such is, of course, not the case. I'm sure that there are many true Christians who honestly believe that they can grow into obedience unto God by some system of law-keeping, but such is not the case. First of all, it should be realized that nobody under the old covenant ever was enabled to keep the law, which had been given through Moses. At the time of the first council of Jerusalem, as recorded in the 15th of Acts, the disciples were discussing the fact that the gospel had been given to the Gentiles. There had arisen a party within the church, which was attempting to fasten the observances of Jewish ceremonial law upon the Christians. The council repudiated that party and that doctrine and insisted upon the doctrine of free grace. That council was the fulfillment of the word of the Lord Jesus, for he had announced in advance that this would be the procedure followed in the church. He said, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. No matter what the interpretation, it must be understood that the Greek of this verse refers to things and not to persons. It does not say, Whosoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, but whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It does not say, Whosoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, but whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing refers most certainly to the freeing of the New Testament Christians from the bondage of the law. The disciples were to meet and to decide which things of the law were to be taken from believers in this age. Were they and are we to be bound by dietary laws? Could they and we not eat pork, for example? Certainly we may. They and we were to be loosed from the provisions of the law in this regard. Were they and we to be subject to ceremonial washings and like practices? Certainly we are not. It was Peter himself who rose in the council to declare this freedom. The central passage is the following, quote, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That is, Peter is here acknowledging that he had been given the keys to open the door of the gospel to the Gentile world. And it should be noted that the door has been open ever since and that therefore no keys are henceforth necessary. Peter continued, as recorded in this 15th of Acts, saying, And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But said he, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Oh, what a forthright declaration that the church is not to be under law, but under grace. How foolish people are who think that righteousness can come by the law. 
Does anyone believe that prohibition can prohibit? I do not think that the entire resources of the United States, with its army and its navy, could keep gambling, liquor, and prostitution out of this country. Prohibition has never prohibited, and law has never been a deterrent from sin. The human heart wants its own desires, and it is going to go to any lengths to procure them. I remember reading a story that had an element of humor in it, back in the days of prohibition, so-called, and this story concerned a certain man and how he had provided for his own private liquor supply in those days. He had a 400-pound stove in his kitchen. He disconnected the stovepipe and moved the stove. He prepared a trap door under the stove, and through it he reached the low cellar under the kitchen, which had no other entrance. And here he dug a hole leading to a tunnel, which he dug some 40 feet to the place where he stored the liquor, which he had hoarded in advance. He then replaced the stove and reconnected the pipe, and every time he wanted a bottle, he went through the same process. But one day, he couldn't get the stove back in place fast enough, and the enforcement agents caught him. Now, that's a story which may make you smile with the absurdity of it, but it shows that the natural heart of man is going to have its own way, even if he has to adopt desperate means to get it. Or oh, it would undoubtedly be possible to find stories of men who went to their death while seeking to gratify their lusts. The conclusion from all of this is that law cannot prevent sin. You must not conclude that I am therefore advocating the abolition of law. Law is necessary for the lawless, not to prevent them from sinning, but to provide sanctions for their punishment and for our protection. What I am setting forth in these thoughts is to underline the necessity for the Christian to understand that the life of true righteousness comes not from law, but from the love of Christ under grace. Let us note this difference in a practical way. We will imagine the case of a man who is left a widower with two small children. He hires a housekeeper. She is his servant. He gives her instructions as to what she shall cook and how she's to keep the house and how she's to dress and care for the children. He goes about the house from time to time to see that all is in order and that she's properly obeying his rules. He watches her dominion over the children and corrects her in a manner fitting the relationship of master and servant. She is under law. But after a year or so, he marries this woman. The relationship is immediately entirely changed. He no longer follows her around the house to oversee her work. He no longer tells her what to cook for dinner. Now she is his in a relationship of love. Now she delights to do his will. Now she seeks to find out his desires and to perform them. Now she asks him what he would like to have for dinner and goes to some trouble to prepare it and to care for him. You see, she is no longer under law. She's under grace. Now, this distinction is very sharply presented in the Greek of the New Testament concerning our relationship with God, though the truth is somewhat obscured by our translations, which are rather archaic in some places. In our text in Romans, for example, the words under law are in the Greek huponomon. There is another verse which has a remarkable series of words concerning our relationship to the law and to Christ. Words which in English also say under law, but words that are quite different from these in the Greek. 
We read in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, that Paul expressed his attitudes towards the Gentiles as follows. To them that are without law, and I'm reading the King James Version first, to them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Now the Greek words are as follows. To them that are anomois, as anomos, being not anomos to God, but ennomos to Christ, that I might gain them that are anomous. In other words, Paul knew that he had to meet people who were Gentiles and who had no sense of law towards God. They were ruled in their minds only by the necessities of the laws of the state. Paul wished to reach them. How was he to act? He never brought before them the demands of the Mosaic law. Gentiles were not under that law and certainly could not produce the righteousness demanded by it since even the Jews themselves had never been able to furnish such righteousness under that law. He therefore acted towards the heathen as though that law of Moses didn't exist for them, though spiritually, of course, it never had. Though he himself, he says, was not stepping onto their ground of spiritual lawlessness towards God, since he was indeed enfolded into the law through Christ. Oh, do not think for a moment that he is teaching any sort of legalism in saying that he has a law relationship to Christ. He has been joined to Christ as our hand is joined to our body in order to find its rule not in itself, but from the will of the head which is determined for the hand. The only other occasion in the New Testament in which this Greek word ennomos is used is in the speech of the town clerk of Ephesus after the great riot in which the silversmiths had stirred up the people to considerable violence. The official calmed the people, saying that there were legal procedures to deal with all matters and that such should be, quote, determined in a lawful assembly. That's Acts 19.39. And the Greek word is the same. The lawful assembly, the assembly was ennomos, that is, a very part of the law. This was in sharp contrast with the efforts of the people to have a mob trial outside the regular framework of the law. We see, therefore, that the purpose of God in taking us out from under law was in order to make it possible for us to live in grace and to produce in us a type of righteousness which could never come from any possible legal relationship. We can see the situation clearly if we look at the method by which the two relationships were established. The law of Moses was given by God on Mount Sinai under the most frightening circumstances. Listen to the description of it from the Bible. Quote, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, there is no more frightening description in the whole Bible. And it is the setting forth of the relationship of a people with God under law. 
everything that they did would affect this relationship. And in order that they might be kept constantly aware of their position, their whole religious procedure was established as a procedure of distance. A veil was hung between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Another veil hung before the door of the tabernacle. A barrier separated the priests from the people. The women were kept still farther back in a court of their own, while the middle wall of partition was built to keep the Gentiles from approaching the whole area, as we read in Ephesians 2. There was no true union between the people and God. The law was over them, and therefore sin reigned, keeping them in the bondage of their position. But now, but now, let us look at that sharp contrast which is now presented to us in grace. For when the Bible says, but now, it means now since Christ has died. At the moment in which Christ died, there was an earthquake, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, a sign that believers now had free access into the very presence of God. The middle wall of partition was broken down. The promise of Christ was now available to all, without let or hindrance. He had said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And since he died, it is now the present right of every believer to come with boldness by this new and living way into the holiest of all. It is now possible for us to sing at any moment whatsoever, nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen, nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing between. Now from God's point of view, nothing, nothing can ever come to mar the relationship that now exists between those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Savior. From our own point of view, nothing need mar the fellowship. To illustrate this, come with me to the door from the dining room to the kitchen in a home. There stands a mother with her arms outstretched to her small child. Nothing can ever affect the fact that the child is her child. No matter what he might grow up to become, he is her child, and will be even though she should come to the place where she would repudiate him. And though a human parent might repudiate a child, God cannot do such a thing, cannot. And he has told us that he would not, for we read in 2 Timothy 2, though we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. But at the moment when we are looking at the mother holding out her arms to the child, the child is crying and turning away from the mother. Does her attitude change? Not at all. Then what is it that keeps the child away from the mother's arms? Nothing in her, certainly. The fact is that the child is disobeyed, and the disobedience turns the child from fellowship. Five minutes before, when there was obedience, the child's face was towards the mother's full love. Now the child's face is turned away from the mother's full love. Nothing has changed the love. The fellowship is broken from the sinner's side, but never from the Lord's side. That is why we must note the truth in that other hymn, Son of my soul, thou Savior dear, it is not night if thou be near. Oh, may no earth-born clouds arise to hide thee from thy servant's eyes. All clouds are earth-born, never forget that. No cloud comes down from above. They rise from the miasmas, 
the marshes, the ponds, the rivers, the oceans of the earth. Now Christ has died, and the groundwork is settled forever. We have been joined to him, not under law, but under grace. As we recognize the height and depth of this relationship, we shall know the corresponding triumph and glory of belonging to him. What can I do and what can I say to make you who are believers see this truth? How can I lead you to the height of that magnificence which discloses to you the vast panorama that lies before the believer who has thus entered into the rest of God? For if once you can catch the vision that you are entirely freed from the law and joined to Christ, you will bring forth a new life in a newness of spirit that is beyond any comparison and which surpasses any description. We are in Christ. There is nothing that he is that God has not made us. There is nothing that he shall do that he will not share with us. Even when he was going to the cross, he was talking to the Father about us, expressing the joy which he had in us and announcing that he was handing over the glory which he was to receive in his resurrection so that it might adorn us in our union with him. Henceforth, all that we do flows from the life which he has placed within us. We serve in the newness of the spirit. We have become the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's the wonderful truth. We're no longer servants. We have been called friends. And more than that, we've been made sons. And because ye are sons, God tells us, he hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, he says, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. There's a story told of the British artist Turner, who has left on canvas a magnificent series of sunset scenes in London. It is said that one day when Turner had set up his easel near one of the bridges, and was busy painting. A lady stood behind him for a moment and then interrupted him, saying, But, Mr. Turner, I don't see such brilliant colors in the sunset. And without turning his head, Turner replied, Don't you wish you could? There's a great spiritual truth there. There is more color in the eye of an artist than there is in the eye of the unseeing multitude. There are harmonies in the ear of a musician which are not in the minds of the common run of men. And there is in the heart of the believer who has seen himself united with Christ a glorious certainty that he has been lifted above all, lifted above the law of this world and even above the laws given by God to mankind in its earlier stages. And that he has been made one with Christ in such a way that righteousness flows from his heart to produce a holiness which the law could never have imagined but which grace has the power to bring forth. Newell has a note on this verse, which deserved to be incorporated into the volume of his book. He wrote, We really have no hope of any person's willingness or ability to see the power of this newness of spirit plan, this love plan of God's, until such a one has seen and believed that he died with Christ, that he was so bad that his entire old man was sent to the cross to be crucified, so that now he is married to another, to him that was raised from the dead, in order that he may bring forth fruit unto God. That God can be a savior God and not be a lawgiver is beyond the reach of the human mind to conceive and is to be received by faith alone.
The idea that in those not under law can be produced all that the law demands and much more is foolishness to all but faith. And may God give us that faith in order that we may enter into that fullness. For God earnestly desires that the fullness of faith should be produced in every believer. But it must come on his principles, for he knows that holiness and righteousness can never come from a heart that's trying to keep vows or to keep resolutions or to keep laws, but only from the hearts that have looked away to the cross and comprehended the marvelous fact that all things are ours in Christ. And under grace, fully and freely received and justified, we go forward to live as those who are alive from the dead. And our God and Father, we pray thee that thou shalt bless this truth to each heart in this hour. If there be any who have not been born again, give them restlessness till they rest in Christ and bring all thy true children into full grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sinful humanity hates to admit their spiritual bankruptcy and utter dependence on God's grace. But salvation and eternal life must be received as God's free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Lifted Above. You can listen to additional teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Lifted Above or simply request message number R6-31. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled More Names of God. What's in a name, wrote Shakespeare? When you study the names of God, you will discover a wealth of riches in the knowledge of Him. In this free booklet, Dr. Barnhouse focuses on five of the nearly 400 names of God in Scripture, showing how each name reveals glorious aspects of the Lord's character and attributes. Understanding the names of God will help you know Him better. Ask for your free copy of More Names of God when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.